Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is season two of Crimes of the Centuries. On a crisp fall morning, a Monday, in 1935, two young boys made a grisly discovery in Kingsbury Run, an area in southeast Cleveland, Ohio. The boys, ages 16 and 12, had been playing catch but lost control of the ball. To retrieve it, they ran down a hill affectionately called Jackass Hill and were stopped in their tracks by the sight of a man's body, naked except for socks. Also, he was missing a head, and a penis, and his blood had been drained. The boys rushed home and told their parents what they had found. Their parents, naturally, alerted police. If police had been skeptical about the report, that doubt would have quickly been erased because they not only found the body the boys had reported, but they found another mutilated corpse to boot. Also decapitated, also emasculated, but this would have been there for quite some time, maybe as long as a month. But it was hidden in the sumac bushes, so no one would see it unless they were really on top of it. This is James J. Badal, author of In the Wake of the Butcher. They found the heads of both men buried in the dirt with just enough hair of one of them sticking above the surface to make sure the police would find them. Two dead, emasculated, headless bodies found at one time was jarring enough But what officials couldn't have predicted at the time was that the discovery of these two men marked the first in the official tally of a serial killer to be dubbed the Cleveland Torso Murderer, a case that would forever haunt the town and the investigators who tried to solve it, including one of history's most famous and least touchable. If you type torso murders into the old Google machine, you might be surprised at just how many there have been over the years. In the 1920s, a spate hit Pennsylvania, some 15 victims attributed to a still unknown killer whose victims were as young as six. The series of killings stopped as mysteriously as they started. The next decade, another spate hit Cleveland, Some people, including one of the lead investigators in Cleveland, have wondered if the two series are connected. Ohio and Pennsylvania are neighbors, after all. But there's never been solid evidence linking the two. So today, we'll focus on the Buckeye State, where the terror began September 23, 1935, with the discovery of those two headless bodies. The first man was identified as 29-year-old Edward Andrassy, who lived on Fulton Avenue with his parents. And he was what police in those days called a snotty punk. Andrasy had a sketchy record. He couldn't seem to hold down a job. Strangely, the one long-term job he did have was on again, off again, like a bad relationship. He'd been hired and then fired and then rehired 11 times total 
at a city hospital. Where he worked as an orderly in the psycho ward. Interesting, isn't it? Andrusy had had a rough upbringing through no fault of his own or his immigrant parents. When he was 16 years old, his older brother Joseph had been killed at age 20 in a bar fight, after which Andrusy seemed to struggle. His parents told reporters that they had tried to help him, tried to set him straight, but he told them to butt out. He'd been arrested any number of times for drinking and brawling. He was even known for sleeping off his drunks in cemeteries. That history of legal run-ins likely helped keep him from dying in anonymity. Of the dozen victims officially attributed to today's killer, only two victims were ever officially identified. Even the man found with Andrusy never got a name. Now, Cleveland in the 30s was struggling with the Great Depression, as was much of the country, but it was arguably doing better than most. It was, at this point, the sixth biggest city in the country and had successfully bid itself as a convention city. Its downtown had a new Union train station, fancy hotels, and a state-of-the-art auditorium. When the two bodies were discovered in the fall, the city was gearing up for an especially big summer. The Republican National Convention was being held there, as was the Great Lakes Exposition, a big old fair designed to celebrate Cleveland's centennial. Cleveland, the state's largest city, flings its soaring towers into the blue Lake Erie sky. Built on Lake Erie's southern shores, today's Cleveland typifies America at its best. Cleveland's population was straight up booming, having grown 60% between 1910 and 1930. And a lot of that population stemmed from immigration. Some 25% of the city's 900,000 residents were foreign-born. Poland and Slovenia were biggies, as was Hungary, which is where Edward Andrusy's parents, Joseph and Helen, had been born. The two had traveled to the U.S. with their oldest child, John, in 1901. After they settled, they had four more children. Joseph Jr., the son later murdered in a bar fight, was born in 1902. Edward was the couple's second-to-last child and their youngest son. While an orderly at the hospital where he sometimes worked, Edward met a young woman named Lillian Kardotsky, a nurse. Marriage records showed the two wed November 12, 1928. They had a daughter together, but had split up before the girl could even walk. By the 1930 census, Edward was back living with his folks, as did the two sisters who sandwiched him in age, Irene and Edna. Now, Edward's folks knew he was mixed up with some rough people, They knew this because just two months before the murder of their second son, a man had shown up at their home threatening to kill Edward for, quote, paying attention, end quote, to the man's wife. Naturally, thinking that this visit might be related to Edward's death, they told police about the encounter after his body was found. In turn, Detective Sergeant Bernard Wolf told reporters in a wire story that ran in newspapers all over the country that Edward Andrusy was likely the victim of a love triangle. I'm sure they saw the genital mutilation as support for this theory. They assumed that the man found with him was somehow connected to the tawdry affair as well, and why else would their bodies have been dumped together? 
And because they never could figure out who that second man was, they had no reason to doubt the conclusion they'd reached. It was a sad affair, sure, but surely it wasn't random. Not that the police didn't legitimately search for the killer. They did. In fact, they went so far as to track down the guy who'd killed Joseph Andrusi Jr. in 1922, 13 years before Edward's death. They held that man for a few days before springing him loose, satisfied that he hadn't harbored a deadly grudge against the family for more than a decade. A few weeks passed, then a few months, and this strange murder stopped making national news. Until January 1936, when pieces of a woman's body were found in burlap sacks behind a Cleveland factory. Thanks to her fingerprints and criminal record for sex work, Florence Polillo, alias Clara Dunn, alias Flo Martin, was quickly identified as the victim. She'd been dead a few days when her hips, thighs, pelvis, lower half of her torso, and her right arm were recovered. At this point, the city of Cleveland had a new safety director who had only been on the job about a month from a Crime Vault documentary. Safety director Elliot Ness became heavily involved. If the name Elliot Ness sounds familiar, there's a reason. That's because years earlier, Ness was well known at the time for heading up the Untouchables, a group of federal law enforcement agents that worked to take down Al Capone, and it was believed that his savviness as a detective would bring fast closure to the case. Spoiler alert, it didn't. And in fact, it probably helped dim Ness's political star, though not his legacy. A few months after Florence Polillo's body parts were discovered, police fielded an anonymous tip in May 1936, insisting that a group called the Black Legion was responsible for the deaths. That was a secret organization dedicated to terrorizing people of color, Catholics, and Jews. The group was known as a more violent version of the Ku Klux Klan, which should tell you something. The month after that tip, a new body surfaced. This time, there was again a head, which authorities hoped would mean a fairly easy identification. But as with victim number two, that wasn't the case, which is admittedly surprising in this situation because not only did they have a head in good condition, hair still intact, tissue unaffected by decomposition, but this man had multiple tattoos, unique ones even. His left leg bore a cigar-chomping comic strip character called Jigs. His right shoulder, a butterfly. Right outer arm, heart with a piercing arrow. Right inner forearm, crossed flags with the initials WCG. On his left arm were the names Helen and Paul beneath an image of a dove. He had everything short of my name is blank tattooed on his body. And even with all of those tattoos and an identifiable face, the man was never reunited with his name. He's known only as the Cleveland Torso Murderer's fourth victim, a.k.a. the Tattooed Man. It was around mid-1936 when Cleveland officials began wondering when the torso killings really started. 
See, the fact was there had been a dismembered corpse discovered in the same general area the year before Edward Andrassy and his unnamed acquaintance in death were discovered. At first, police didn't link this corpse, discovered in September 1934, with the subsequent ones. But now that they felt the same killer had struck these four latest victims, they wondered, could he have been responsible for that one too? James Badal again. A man by the name of Frank Lagasse, who lived in Beulah Park, which is east of Bratnall in Euclid, was walking along the shores of Lake Erie looking for driftwood to burn. This was, after all, the Depression. And he saw something which he later described to friends as looking like a tree trunk with the bark stripped off of it. When he got closer, he realized it was the lower half of a woman's torso, amputated at the knees, but thighs still attached. Lagasse straight away alerted police, who searched in vain for more of the woman. The coroner at the time decided the woman had been dead for maybe six months, and that her body had been in the water perhaps three or four. It's hard to tell. She was never identified. No one was ever arrested for murder. And she was simply called by the police, the Lady of the Lake. And she was more or less forgotten. Nearly 90 years later, it's of course tough to know whether the Lady of the Lake should be counted in the torso murderer's official tally. And it's possible she shouldn't be. As gruesome and shocking as these crimes were, they weren't exactly unique. We covered a torso case in season one, after all. And for newbies of the series, check out our episode on William Goldensup. Here's what I mean. In December 1936, a story in the Minneapolis Star Tribune made it clear that Cleveland wasn't alone in battling a torso killer. Jack Martin, with the byline Distinguished Crime Reporter, to which I still aspire, wrote a full-page Sunday story delving into the difficulties police had been having identifying dismembered bodies. You'd think this national story might include details from Cleveland, what with that city having five torso killings in the previous two years, but not once in that story was a Cleveland case mentioned. Instead, the story focused on cases in Kentucky, in Missouri, in California, in Massachusetts. One was in Ohio, but it was in West Alexandria, some 230 miles southwest of Cleveland. But all the author clearly thinks that the official body count for the Cleveland butcher is too low. He counts the lake lady among them. Whatever the case, the fifth official victim turned up 13 months after the tattooed man. In July 1936, a teenage girl was walking through some woods on the city's near west side when she stumbled across the decapitated remains of a 40-ish year old white man. For the first time in this series, the body appeared to have been found at the actual murder site based on the enormous amount of blood investigators discovered had seeped into the ground nearby. The victim had been dead about two months. His head and a pile of bloody clothing were found nearby. Victim number six was discovered when a transient man running to hop a train tripped over the upper half of a torso in his path at East 37th Street. The torso belonged to a man. In a nearby pool of stagnant water, really more of a sewer dump than anything, police found the torso's lower half and parts of his legs. According to the Cleveland Police Museum, some 600 onlookers gathered to watch as a diver searched for more pieces. 
Now, I haven't mentioned the cause of death. It's incredibly unsettling. Based on how the coroner could see the victim's blood reacted to the cuts at the top of the torsos, he determined that most, if not all, of the victims likely died by decapitation, as in they were alive when their heads were cut off. Not only that, but most of the victims' wounds suggested there hadn't been any hesitation in the wielding of whatever tool the killer had used, meaning he did it with confidence, with strength. Also, whoever did it in Cleveland knew exactly what he was doing. He knew where to cut. He knew the landmark of a human body. The Cleveland Police Department, which worked separately but supposedly in concert with Elliot Ness, assigned two detectives to the case full-time, Peter Marilou and Martin Zalewski. Others, of course, came and went, but those two were dedicated solely to the torso murders. County officials also looked to outsiders for help. The Cuyahoga County Coroner, a man named Arthur Pierce, called in the summer of 1936 what the newspapers dubbed a torso clinic. And what he did was call in all the police who had worked on the case. He called in Elliot Ness, who at that point was Cleveland's safety director. He brought in the anatomist from Western Reserve Medical School and the heads of the various mental institutions in the area. And they just had a skull session. What are we looking for? And it wasn't until after I wrote the first edition of Boca that I realized this is one of the first examples of what today we would call modern FBI profiling. Uh, very, very advanced. Investigators had, of course, begun to wonder if they were looking for a doctor gone mad. Though those gathered at this clinic weren't thrilled about the notion of pinning the murders on someone so prestigious as a doctor. So they leaned more toward butcher or maybe hunter. Soon after this clinic came election day. Coroner Pierce was replaced by Sam Gerber, a doctor who's credited as having modernized the whole office. He would later make headlines as a star witness in the trials against Sam Shepard, the infamous case upon which the movie The Fugitive was at least loosely based. In February 1937, a man spotted the upper half of a woman's torso washed ashore. Her decapitation was noteworthy in that it was the first to appear to have been post-mortem rather than the cause of death. The torso's lower half wouldn't surface for three more months. Her skull or other remains were never found. Gerber estimated she was likely in her 20s, but she was never identified. Then, in June, a teenage boy found a skull beneath the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge, next to which was a burlap sack full of the skeletal remains of a black woman around age 40. While she officially remains unidentified, a man claimed her as his mother, and dental records seemed to back him up, so most people familiar with the case accept that the victim was a woman named Rose Wallace. Like Florence Polillo, Wallace had been known to sell sex on occasion. The fact that the two-slash-three known victims had criminal records and the remaining victims had no loved ones stepping forward to claim them suggests that the killer was intentionally targeting people on the fringes of society. From a WGN news report. The people who are murdered, they're the transients of the Great Depression. You know, the unemployed who are on the railroad cars living in shack towns. And so when these people are murdered with, you know, several exceptions, nobody can identify them. Nobody knows them. 
If you've lost track, this latest victim, likely but not definitely Rose Wallace, is number eight. Number nine was a man discovered a month later on July 6, 1937. The National Guard had been called in to maintain order because steel workers throughout Cuyahoga County were protesting shoddy working conditions and low wages. A young guardsman near the West Third Street Bridge saw a chunk of human bobbing in the wake of a passing tugboat. With the important exception of his head, which would never be found, the rest of the man's body was retrieved in pieces over the next few days. This victim was never identified, but believed to be in his mid to late 30s. He stood out from the others in that the killer not only hacked and dismembered him, but this time, his internal organs had been ripped from his body and his heart pulled from his chest. And this worried authorities even more because they took it to mean that the killer was getting more agitated, more brazen. The most vicious murderer in the city's history had suddenly become more vicious. And that was scary stuff. In April 1938, a worker walking along the Cuyahoga River spotted what he thought at first was a dead fish, but turned out to be the lower half of a woman's leg. Her torso and most of the rest of her legs wouldn't be found for another month. For the first time, Coroner Gerber detected drugs in the victim's system. He told reporters he didn't know if those drugs had been used to immobilize her or if she had been an addict. He was optimistic he'd have his answer once her arms were recovered. He figured he'd see track marks on them, but that never happened. Victim number 11 has stirred some controversy. On August 16, 1938, three men out foraging for scraps of metal to sell found a woman's torso wrapped in a man's double-breasted blue blazer and then wrapped again in a quaint old quilt. Nearby, the legs and arms were wrapped in butcher paper and then put inside a makeshift box that was held together by rubber bands. The reason this one ultimately proved controversial is because Gerber didn't perform this autopsy, a city pathologist did, after which the remains were turned over to the anatomy department of Western Reserve University. The head anatomist T. Wingate Todd took a second look at the body parts and said, yeah, I think you've been bamboozled. Todd said this is not a legitimate torso victim. This woman was already dead. The body had been embalmed. Nevertheless, likely to spare the city some embarrassment, that body remains on the killer's official list of victims. That said, whoever tossed this embalmed body was likely the torso killer, even if he didn't actually kill this particular woman. We suspect this because while police gathered that victim's pieces, they discovered parts of another dismembered body in the same area. It appeared that the two corpses had been dumped in the same place at roughly the same time. And by the way, that location happened to be in plain view of Elliot Ness's office window, which many took as the killer taunting the lawman. Neither victim number 11 nor 12 was ever identified. If the killer indeed was trying to rattle Ness, it worked. Because two days later, Ness would lose patience and take a drastic step in hopes of finally outing the madman butcher. Just past midnight on August 18, 1938, Cleveland Safety Director Elliot Ness gathered some three dozen investigators and officers. Their objective? 
to raid and ransack the makeshift shacks housing nearly a hundred transients in hobo camps along the Cuyahoga River. Ness's purported logic was that these transients were sitting ducks for a relentless killer. By displacing these clusters of struggling people, Ness figured he was starving the butcher of prey. And maybe that was true, but the image of this big old city boss forcing dozens from their sad hovels did not sit well with the general public. Here's how the Associated Press story about the raid began. Quote, Police routed 59 unkempt vagrants from makeshift shacks in three shanty towns within a mile of downtown Cleveland today in their hunt for the phantom torso slayer of a dozen persons. The men, some apparently in drunken stupor, were whisked to jail in a fleet of police vehicles. They were placed in cells to await questioning. Ten were found to have police records. End quote. And these were people living in homes built from discarded crates and bits of scavenged wood and metal, suddenly rounded up and arrested, and by most reports, not even allowed to get their few personal belongings before Ness ordered the camps burned to the ground. But a funny thing did happen. Though Ness was heavily criticized and though the public believed that the violent raid would do nothing to stop the murders, no bodies were found after it. Now, that likely wasn't because of the raids. It so happened that around that time, police questioned their first strong suspect, a doctor by the name of Francis E. Sweeney. Sweeney had flickered onto Ness's radar as early as 1936, but the lawman's efforts to track the doctor were continually thwarted. According to one report, when an investigator would try to tail Sweeney, he'd often disappear behind a corner then circle back and surprise the investigator by introducing himself, making it clear he'd been made. Another time, he supposedly led his tail into a bar and ordered a drink for himself and his shadow. Murder suspect aside, I might have liked this guy. So, why did Sweeney seem a good fit? Well, first off, he was a doctor, accounting for the killer's obvious anatomical knowledge. He'd also served as a medic in World War I, his registration card for which describes him as five foot two with brown hair and blue eyes. He was honorably discharged after less than two years with a notation that he was, quote, 25% disabled, end quote. He'd grown up poor in the Kingsbury Run area of Cleveland, and while he had become quite successful early in his career, he also battled some serious genetic demons. His mom died of a stroke when he was just nine, and his father battled alcoholism and psychosis. Sweeney was married to a woman who, in 1933, had him committed for treatment of alcoholism, which cost him his medical practice. That wife also tried to get him declared insane, saying he had started hallucinating and had become abusive toward her and their two children. A judge dismissed the complaint, but the missus moved out in 1934 and was granted a divorce two years later. In early 1938, two other people filed affidavits questioning Sweeney's sanity. First, his dentist in February, followed by his older sister in April. Both times, he was deemed competent. In May 1938, Ness and his team apparently ignored that whole pesky Fourth Amendment hoopla about illegal search and seizure, kidnapped Sweeney, and threw him into a room at the Cleveland Hotel. 
The doctor, an alcoholic, was forced to dry out over a few days. Then he was questioned and polygraphed. But all writes that the questioning lasted eight hours a day for a solid week. By the end of it, Ness was sure he had found the torso killer, but there was a problem. The doctor was first cousins with a congressman named Martin Sweeney, a guy who had made national headlines for decrying prohibition and accusing his House of Representative colleagues that they were behaving like a lot of old women when it came to alcohol. Not only that, but I learned in my research that Martin Sweeney's daughter was married to Cuyahoga County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell, meaning that Ness's favorite suspect was related to the sheriff by marriage. Now, Ness was famous for being untouchable. He literally co-wrote the book, The Untouchables, which was turned into a TV series starring Robert Stack. What happens to me? It's like I said, you go up for murder first degree. No, you made a deal. Did I? And later a movie with Kevin Costner. I have sworn to put this man away with any and all legal means at my disposal, and I will do so. As you hear in this biography documentary, the word untouchable refers to the reputation Ness had as being so above board and ethical that when one of Al Capone's men offered him $2,000 a week to back the hell off the mob boss. Ness at that moment was enraged that he'd be offered a bribe and he took the money and stuffed it back into the young uh, mobster's pockets, literally threw him out of the office. And that pretty much summed up what Ness was all about, the fact that he couldn't be corrupted. Ness's refusal to entertain a two grand a week bribe is all the more impressive when you realize that his annual salary at the time was only $3,000. If Ness were truly such an upstanding lawman, I'm not sure why Sweeney being cousins with a congressman would have deterred him. And maybe it didn't exactly. Maybe what it did is make Ness ultra-conscientious about gathering enough evidence to make a criminal case against Sweeney bulletproof. Maybe he just never could. I mean, his interrogation of Sweeney was straight-up illegal. Sweeney knew when he was being tailed. I mean, maybe this is one of those rare instances in which the criminal actually was a mastermind. Just after that week-long interrogation, Sweeney voluntarily entered a psychiatric hospital, putting him beyond Ness's reach. This was about the same time as the Shantytown raids. Now, because Sweeney had entered the place voluntarily, he could choose to leave, and apparently he did the next year. Around that same time, the Cuyahoga County Sheriff decided he knew who the killer was, and without Ness's involvement, he arrested a 52-year-old man named Frank Dolezal, described in a news story as a brawny bricklayer. Sheriff Martin O'Donnell told reporters that Dolezal confessed specifically to the Florence Polillo murder, though O'Donnell also said there were discrepancies between his confession and the known facts of the crime. On July 8, 1939, O'Donnell said he was going to continue his interrogation of Dolezal because, quote, we want to get a confession that will hold up before we place any charges against him, end quote. He added, I have no doubt he is the man. Problem was, he wasn't the man. Lead detective Peter Marilou had not only interrogated him, but he'd done so twice, and he'd put him under surveillance. Marilou was certain Dolezal was not the killer. He was just a guy who apparently had an impressive knife collection 
who had once lived with Polillo and who the evidence suggests was brutally beaten by sheriff's deputies into confessing. Listen to the second day story that ran in the Coshocton, Ohio Tribune. Quote, Frank Dolezal, confessed torso murderer who linked himself with the haunts of the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run, sobbed hysterically last night as authorities demanded to know exactly how he disposed of his victim's head. End quote. After what must have been two months of utter hell, Dolezal was found dead, hanging in a cell on August 24, 1939. The death was reported as a suicide, but Coroner Gerber noted the man had six broken ribs, and Cleveland's mayor told reporters outright that the sheriff had accused the wrong man. Even newspaper editorials at the time openly doubted Dolezal's guilt. Read one, quote, Sheriff O'Donnell's exploit in finding the torso slayer after the Cleveland Police Department had failed to even unearth a clue appears to have backfired, end quote. But as mentioned earlier, the torso murders did stop. Filmmaker Mark Stone, who made a documentary about the case, has a theory. We believe that, that Martin Sweeney was approached that, hey, this is, your cousin is the guy. Well, we think that, that things went easy on Frank Sweeney if he agreed to leave town. And indeed, he left town and indeed the killings Stop. Ness never publicly identified Sweeney as his main suspect, instead referring to him by the pseudonym Gaylord Sundheim. No idea why. In fact, Ness didn't even tell anyone about the week-long interrogation until shortly before his death in 1957, which is when he confided in writer Oscar Fraley, who would ultimately co-author The Untouchables. It wouldn't be until 1983, long after both Ness's and Sweeney's deaths, that former head of the police's scientific bureau, David Cowles, would confirm the interrogation. And it'd be a few years after that before Sweeney was confirmed as Gaylord Sundheim. Though Ness thought he had his guy, other investigators continued the search. Lead detective Peter Marilou, for example, continued digging into every tip that came in, many of which centered around sex offenders. He went undercover as a transient for a spell and, from that experience, grew certain that the killer he sought rode the rails and was also responsible for torso murders in other states, particularly those in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, mentioned earlier this episode. By the time Marilou retired in the 40s, he wrote that more than 7,000 people had been interrogated in connection with the case. One of his reports actually identifies Sweeney as a possible suspect, though there were so many suspects mentioned in its reports that the designation is a bit watered down. Marilou vowed to keep searching until his death, which came in 1959 at age 63. In the years since, various journalists and authors have dug up bits and pieces that seem to bolster the Sweeney theory. For starters, it was a writer named Marilyn Bardsley who pinned down Sweetie as Gaylord Sundheim in the 1970s. Author James Bedall, whose voice you've heard here from various talks he's given, makes a strong case for Sweeney's guilt in his book, In the Wake of the Butcher, Cleveland Torso Murders. His reasoning is this. Sweeney had worked with five other physicians in a medical practice inside of a house on Broadway near St. Alexis Hospital. 
the hospital at which Sweeney had worked as a surgical resident after his 1928 graduation from medical school. The first floor of the house was a medical facility, complete with waiting room, examination room, even a room for minor surgery. Living quarters were on the second floor. A deli was connected on the first floor, and the second floor had a hidden rear entrance. If you remember, victim number one, Edward Andersey, had worked as an orderly in a psychiatric ward at the same hospital that Sweeney was sent to in 1933 to detox. Could they have met there? But all things is possible. He also notes that next door to the medical office Sweeney shared was a funeral home, a three-story building that included living quarters and undertaking facilities. And could Sweeney have taken his victims there for blood draining and dismemberment? Is it possible that the supposed 11th victim, the one that had previously been embalmed and probably wasn't a torso victim at all, was actually an unclaimed indigent from the funeral home specifically designed to taunt Ness? I mean, all of this could be dismissed as retroactive reasoning, but there's one account from the 1930s that seems to substantiate it. In 1938, a vagrant named Emil Fronick said that four years earlier, he had visited a deli near St. Alexis Hospital, hoping for some food. The deli was closed. The next thing he knew, he said, he was on the second floor of a doctor's office, where a friendly, middle-aged man with graying hair introduced himself as a doctor and offered him food and some new shoes. Fronick accepted and ate the meal with gusto. Then he got woozy. He suspected the food he'd just eaten had been drugged, and before the stuff kicked in fully, he bolted, running down Broadway with the doctor chasing after him. He ran until he hit railroad yards, where he climbed into a boxcar and passed out. He didn't wake for three days, he said. After he did, he tried to find the medical office again but couldn't, which makes sense if he had been taken through a hidden second-floor entrance. If Fronick's encounter was indeed with Francis Sweeney, all the pieces seemed to fit together, and the doc's MO seems clear. He would drug his victims, slaughter them while they were unconscious, but in most cases still alive, then drain their blood, dismember their bodies, and disperse the pieces throughout Kingsbury Run. And if all of that is true, he straight up got away with it. Author Michael Jordan. There's no sense of closure. Not for the families of the victims, and not for the public. Because we'll just never know. Getting away with murder apparently wasn't enough for Francis Sweeney, who's believed to have written several taunting postcards and a letter mailed to Elliot Ness sent from a veterans hospital in Dayton in the mid-1950s. These postcards are wild. One has a newspaper clipping adhered to it with an advertisement headlined, Handbook for Poisoners, and refers to the writer as paranoidal nemesis. Three of the postcards include the word Sweeney, one actually has the doctor's initials too, F.E. Sweeney, and the letter was signed Frank E. Sweeney, M.D. Aside from Ness's widow, no one knew about these postcards until 1977, when they were donated by Ness's daughter-in-law to the Western Reserve Historical Society. And while in hindsight, they are certainly damning, I can see why Ness never thought he had enough to press charges. Sending creepy-ass postcards isn't a crime, after all, and it's certainly not evidence of murder. 
Ness, at one point in his career, seemed destined for huge things politically. And granted, he has been portrayed by both Robert Stack and Kevin Costner, so his legacy isn't too shabby. But in 1947, his attempt to become Cleveland mayor resulted in an embarrassing loss, and he lost most of his money, both in that campaign and in some ill-fated investments. In 1955, he wrote up 21 pages, double-spaced, of memoirs, which he shared with Oscar Fraley, who turned them into the book The Untouchables. Fraley sent Ness an early copy of the book called A Galley Edition. This is Rebecca McFarland. Elliot read it and said, this isn't what I sent you. This isn't my story. And Oscar said, tough. You don't like it. You can write off the rights to it. But I think it's going to be a bestseller. And Elliot said, I don't want anything to do with this. This isn't my story. So he wrote off all rights to it for $300 because he needed the money. Ness died in 1957 of a heart attack before the book was published. His family saw none of the proceeds that came from it not only being a huge hit, but also being bought straight away and turned into a TV show. When he died, Ness was $8,000 in debt. Martin Sweeney, the cousin whose political connections allegedly thwarted Ness's efforts to arrest his main suspect, had lost his political sheen in the 1940s after a failed bid for Ohio governor. He died in 1960, though the Sweeney clan remains powerful in Cleveland area politics. Martin J. Sweeney, in fact, is currently on the county council. But it's Francis Sweeney whose postscript we care about the most. The man Elliot Ness was convinced was a killer spent the rest of his life in and out of psychiatric hospitals until his death on July 9, 1964. He was buried in Cleveland's Calvary Cemetery, taking all of his secrets with him. Research this case, I read James Jessen Badal's In the Wake of the Butcher, who's 99% sure Sweeney's the killer in this case, and I can see why he's so convinced. The Cleveland Police Museum was hugely helpful, as were some documentaries. I also referenced contemporary news articles and did a bit of genealogical research to boot. And I'm happy to be back. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>